Aloha, everybody. This is the Green Tea Podcast coming at you from Kauai Community College from the Digital Media Center. I'm your host, James, and I'm here to discuss with guests and explain sustainability ideas and Newsweekly from a variety of perspectives, including its role in environmental engineering and economic development and the world's role for a bright future. Now here with me today, I have Dan Erickson, who is a part-time lecturer here at the college for sustainable science courses. Some of those courses he teaches are sustainable culinary arts, water and waste management, sustainable building design, and sustainability in a changing world, and last but not least, renewable energy, a course that I'm actually enrolled in myself. So welcome, Dan, to the show. Welcome to the Green Tea. Stoked to be here. Awesome. So I think to start off for our listeners, we should give a little basic definition of sustainability, which, you know, a a very basic definition is meeting today's needs without jeopardizing the needs of the future. What, how how do you feel? You know, there's a ton of ways to define it, but that's a very common. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, everyone might have their own definition. Um, This in its simplest form, I think that defined as perpetuation if there's one word out there that I feel you know Mm -hmm. kind of encompasses what sustainability is and it's perpetuation perpetuation obviously if you want to continue to perpetuate into the future you need to make sure that you have the system the energy the resource required to continue to do that totally and me coming from the mainland, I've, I've kind of noticed, you know, um, you're from the mainland as well. Correct. So you've probably seen how sustainability can vary pretty greatly, greatly from island sustainability and mainland sustainability. So do you have any personal experiences that you think have kind of, you know, seen those differences between sustainability from an island context while, you know, being on a major mainland like that? I think the biggest thing is, and typically, you know, sustainability is really ingrained into the DNA and the culture of indigenous peoples. Uh-huh. I'm from Iowa. Two, you know, 200, 250 years ago, Iowa really started to get settled. There was a whole bunch of native um, cultures that lived there. Uh-huh. I basically know zero about any of them. Uh-huh. When you come That's to Hawaii... Yeah, it's a shame. And yeah. I, I, the, the state's name, actually, Iowa, is after a um, tribe of Indians, uh, that, uh, or Native Americans, mm-hmm. excuse me, because I, yeah, First Nation, indigenous peoples, people that were here first, mm-hmm. um, yeah, um, comes from them. But when you come to the island, the indigenous culture is still prevalent. And mm-hmm. their culture, it is important to them to maintain like a, almost like a, harmony with the ecosystem around them and that is very important to them Mm -hmm. so just knowing that when I came to the island and seeing how people kind of uh, behave I don't think Mm -hmm. it's quite the right how I want to frame it but how people exist and Mm -hmm. live it has taught me a lot about how just because you do it one way on the mainland and you think it's right and everybody else is doing it that way doesn't mean that that's the way that is right or and especially might not even be best it yep so that there's a lot of examples of that that have made me come to respect and be able to have an open mind 
when it comes to, you know, trying to increase sustainability or just, mm-hmm. you know, be a person who just practices more sustainable lifestyle. Yeah, no, to- totally. Um, it's it's definitely different, and especially um, as a world, you know, UN climate, UN climate Summit and other climate summits that go around around the world, indigenous voices tend to get silenced, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, they have a lot of great perspectives on sustainability, which, as you just mentioned, you know, it, it can vary pretty greatly, you know, living off the land, you know, really taking advantage of resources around you while keeping it sustainable for the future. So... Another definition I think we should go over for our listeners, just so we're all on the same page going forward, is climate change. You know, a a massive existential threat to our species. So what I kind of wanted to go over is what exactly is climate change? You know, the science behind it, as well as, you know, visible effects we can see. Well, basically, when I came to Kauai Community College, as a student, mm-hmm. I started to like really grasp science and I started to become interested in it. And as I gained further knowledge in science, it started to lead me to problems with our current society and what was going on. I studied biochemistry at Oregon and after at the University of Oregon, go Ducks. And, go Ducks. Um, <laughs> basically came to the conclusion that us taking sequestered carbon out of the earth in its solid or liquid state and then combusting it to get to extract the energy that is between the carbon hydrogen bonds in these hard hydrocarbons aka fossil fuels if that's easier for you to mm-hmm. um, relate to and then changing them into the gaseous phase and we basically by doing that have started to noticeably increase the concentration of these molecules in the atmosphere around us. And the atmosphere is massive. But we have been through, as we transition from more sustainable life, where we just completely depended on our symbiosis with nature, we came into one of mechanization and industrial revolution, which has led us to become pretty much probably the most dominant species that the planet has ever seen. We can live at every single climate all over, and that's been good. But the time has come where to continue to use these archaic practices is a burden to the perpetuation of our species into the future. And to me, that is problematic. Therefore, I kind of started to, when I went to graduate school, I wanted to devote my life or, you know, my studies or how I wanted to spend my time learning things to trying to solve this particular issue because I feel it is the largest issue of anything. Of And there's many, you know, we can talk about overfishing, we can talk about, you know, a number of issues that are a problem, but the number one problem, in my opinion, is the changing of the atmosphere's chemistry due to humans essentially burning fossil fuel. Burning fossil fuel, exactly. So now that we've gone over climate change and sustainability, I'd like to move on to kind of how you ended up getting here. So 
you grew up in Iowa. Correct. You used to be a farmer, right? Um, yeah. yeah, our family our family has a, a small operation. It was always in 4-H, showed pigs, um, had some cattle, you know, grew up in the farming community. Um, yeah, then I decided to go, go to college at Iowa State University. Was not exactly a role model student. <laughs> Essentially, uh, failed out's a strong word, but was hovering at the 2.0 level, was definitely not succeeding in the academic world, mm-hmm. and decided to pull the plug. And my friend had a, his, my friend's grandpa was a doctor, and he was a doctor on the Big Island. And my friend said, "Hey, let's go live with him after a summer." And I said, "Great." My friend ended up in jail, couldn't um, couldn't leave the state. Wow. I decided I'm still going, so I just took my mountain bike and my backpack, and went on a mission. So uh, kind of a soul, you know, soul searching solo mission through, and I mountain biked through uh, four of the main Hawaiian islands until I ended up on Kauai. Yeah, from east to west, there you go. Mm-hmm. And so how, how do you, do you think growing up in a farm and being near agriculture operation, do you think that kind of led you to studying sustainability science and, you know, how, you, how, how passionate you are about, you know, treating the world with respect? Yeah. You know, ironically, not really. Where I come from, it's kind of like, when I came to Kauai, they're like, oh, GMOs are bad, and, like, we should look at, like, making sure the water's clean and they're not spraying chemicals and let us know. Mm-hmm. Where I come from is as far as you can see is GMOs. Mm-hmm. Every single direction. And every farmer, uh, since agriculture is a non-point source, they are not regulated on the amount of fertilizer, pesticides, which would include herbicides, fungicides, mm-hmm. insecticides, that they can put on their land. It's all based on economics. Because... How can you say farmer A versus farmer B versus farmer G all the way down? Who contributed what to this nitrogen problem that's in the water? Mm-hmm. So they're kind is even though they're like stewards of the land there, they're stewards in the name of how can they produce the maximum amount of crop they can make. That's their number one concern. And that's kind of alarming, but it took me leaving in order to realize what was going on. Mm-hmm. That happens a lot. So monoculture dominates. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Sure. And uh, I actually was very fortunate when I was in 4-H growing up that my the, the leader of my 4-H club is Ron Roseman. Um, if you haven't ever um, heard of him, looked him up, check him out. He is the pioneer of organic farming in Iowa. All the neighbors were just making fun of him. Mm-hmm. Um, couldn't believe it. His fields are weedy. Just like hated him. But he was stepping back because he was actually one of the few farmers that I know that actually had gone to college and got a, a four-year degree. Mm-hmm. And he came home one summer, uh, mid-'80s, and he went out into the middle of his field, and there wasn't w- anything living except for one thing, and that was corn. There was not another living bug, plant, bird, nothing. That scared Mr. Roseman. And that basically made him dedicate his life to changing the way farming is done within him. And it's taken a long time. Like, he's been totally outcast. But now that people are becoming more aware of how agricultural practices affect the land, are willing to pay more money for people that do things in a more sustainable function or in a more sustainable manner, and it's really starting to turn the corner for him, which has been just pretty incredible to see. He's been a number of places all over the world. 
um, sharing kind of how he does things. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to check Ron out. So going back to, I mean, this is kind of relates to what you were saying about farmers, you know, just all their you know, main goal is producing the max yield at the lowest price. But this can have terrible effects on the soil, which is what we're seeing right now is really bad soil health across the world. So going back to being profitable, what, what you kind of see a lot of the time is this big believed gap. It's a myth that, you know, profits can't coincide with environmental stewardship. Um, when actually being sustainable is profitable on a, num a number of levels. So wh why do you think there's this believed gap that you can't be profitable while being good to the earth at the same time? Well, unfortunately, um, we've developed a society and practices that there's no price on the effect, essentially, that you have on Mother Earth, if you want to go that way, or, you know, mm -hmm. on nature. If, you know, something bad happens, like, there's not a negative economic impact in many cases. And therefore, who takes the brunt of all of all of the negative impact that comes with your processes mm -hmm. or our processes? Because we're all we're all part of it. Because we buy things that are pr yep. produced this way, and unless we're not buying those, we are buying into the system. So we're all responsible. I mean, yeah, it's it's um, it, it's hard, you know, it's because <clears throat> it's just so widely preached that. You know, they, they can't coincide with each other. But like you said, more and more people are becoming conscious consumers, which is really what's necessary. And, you know, as a lot of people say, you know, your vote is what you buy. You know, are, are you going to buy responsibly? And that's that's something everyone can do. You know, that's 100 percent correct. I tell that to every single student in every single one of my classes. I raise my hand or I have a raise of hands. How many of you like GMOs? Regularly, I get zero students that raise their hand. And then I look around and they have a soda in front of them which has high fructose corn syrup and they've been to McDonald's like four times this week. And they've, you know, got all, they're eating all this processed stuff. They don't, haven't gone to a farmer's market in years. Mm -hmm. And, but they want to, you know, be part of it. And I said, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if you want go to go to McDonald's or, you know, buy processed things or, you know, just kind of always go with what's cheapest because it's hard out here. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to survive. It is. It, and so you can't tell people what to do. But just don't go around stating, you know, blasting GMOs and, you know, all these other things. But then spending your dollar and voting for them by giving them your money so they can just continue to increase what their operations are doing yeah and that's yeah. a disconnect that's problematic and why we've gotten into this place because there's no connection between you and your food right now yeah i i mean the connection between you know farm to plate is really really necessary going forward in sustainable development because if we're not you know making our food sustainably that that'll have a mm -hmm. terrible effect on on us directly you know if you buy more locally you can understand where it's sourced from you don't get as much of into the um, factory farming mm -hmm. because when you go to Costco or you go to Foodland or you go to Safeway and you buy the $1.99 pork chop, that pork is raised in a hog confinement. Those pigs never go outside. They live literally live on their doo-doo and shishi. It goes into a pit below them. Mm -hmm. And then they 
grow and they put the next pigs in and they don't and but we get a pork chop for $1.99 we like that maybe it doesn't matter to us mm-hmm. maybe if it does matter to us and then we start having the vegetarian do you want to be a vegetarian and then you can get into that whole realm of things yeah. and I'm not telling people to be vegetarians <clears throat> or anything but if you are concerned about some of these methods first educate yourself so you know what's going on and then if it concerns you enough change your buying practices because that's the way that you actually make a difference yes exactly and you know this this question all started about being sustainable while also being profitable um new new companies some are starting to incorporate the triple bottom line approach which it's a accounting method considering not just profits, but it's people, planet, and profits, triple P. Yes. Um, because yeah, it's like something, you know, could be extremely profitable, but how is that affecting the communities it's in? And how is that affecting the environment around it? Or even not around it, you know? It, something over here can affect something going on, you know, thousands of miles away. So you personally, Dan, as a faculty member teaching sustainability science, why do you think this pretty new discipline is worthwhile for students in the humanities and liberal arts who may consider it pointless to study or to you know, take even simply just one sustainability class? Do you have any students that are from humanities or liberal arts classes that you know, just simply took it because they were interested or they thought it was beneficial? Or? You know, I often don't necessarily know the majors mm-hmm. of my students. Um, I know that Two of the courses, the basic energy science and then also the waste and water management, those are both physical science. So students can get physical science credits for those courses. So sometimes that will be the way that they get their science Mm -hmm. for their liberal arts degree, which I think requires at least one or two Mm -hmm. sciences in the number of categories. Um, The 101, class that's the 101 that's has a writing intensive so that's more like a liberal art i think that is a considered Mm -hmm. a liberal arts class but it's i don't know actually yeah it's 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 not a science designation but okay um yeah so essentially do you care about earth do you want to try to help reduce our impact if you do it would probably be a good idea to start not take my class but if that helps you but Mm. learn somehow learn what's going on so you can actually be more well-educated so then you can make the appropriate decisions because that's what it comes down to. Yes, education and awareness is a huge piece of the puzzle. So going um, off of that, you know, being a faculty member teaching students in sustainability science, you, you do have an interesting perspective on it since you're teaching it. Um, what I want to know is, in your personal opinion, where do you think we need to focus most of our efforts regarding sustainability science and sustainable development as an island, but also as a nation, you know, America? Yeah, I mean, let's get back to it. We, got, we can't continue to remove sequestered carbon from the ground. For one thing, it's super energy intensive and toxic just to get the stuff out of the ground. Mm-hmm. This is before we've even burnt it and extracted the energy, but just to extract it and purify it mm-hmm. has a whole bunch of environmental concerns. Um, fracking, if you don't know about fracking, fracking, the average well, I believe, uses 6 million gallons of water. Basically, none of it is recyclable. Why? Because if you had to recycle it, it would cost you more money and it would rise the price of natural gas. And then, therefore, it couldn't be as competitive to, with wind, solar, and all this other stuff. And can we transition overnight? No. But the rate at which we are transitioning, I feel, is 
at a lot slower than what the technology available could allow us to do. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, but main thing, we've got to change our power. And we've actually been doing decent amount as an island, especially. We're yes. hitting, I think we're at like 55% for this yes, year. Yes, we are. Um, getting close to 60. We got a big, another big project with the pump storage, which we can go into later mm-hmm. if you want, coming on. So we're gonna, as an island of Kauai, we're going to be about 70%. What has allowed us to transition to that so fast? We have a co-op. We don't have a for-profit energy company telling us how we get our electricity. Consumers don't have a choice of where their energy comes from. They have to buy it from whoever is selling it to them. That mm-hmm. brings the power to their house. You do have individual choices by putting solar on your house, but in Kauai, not a lot of people, well, I shouldn't say that. Choke people have tons of money on this island. Mm-hmm. Not everybody can afford that. But luckily, since we have a co-op, we're not just worried. We're not a company in Florida worried about profits and losses like Hiko, Helco, Miko, mm-hmm. all these other companies that it's not even an energy company that's on island. They're worried about taking care of their investors. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the transition, and they also have larger grids, so I will mm-hmm. give them credit on that. But the transition is slower and more painful than what we have on Kauai. So that is, that's the energy generation part. Mm-hmm. As a nation, we're doing okay even though our political will is not there and we're reducing Clean Water Act so it's cheaper to extract coal so we can try to keep coal competitive for longer. We're doing a lot of things on the federal level that are making renewables harder to implement it on an economic side. Mm -hmm. But luckily there's also states and individual companies that also can play a role despite what the federal policy is. And so you'll see a lot of Amazon, Googles, these people really trying to transfer their energy sources to renewable energy. And even though it might be slightly more expensive or it might even be cheaper at this point, in many mm-hmm. cases it is, but they're making a point to make that happen because they can control where they get their power. Yes. Whereas the average consumer cannot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed, um and it's definitely power to, I mean, definitely possible to power those, you know, mega facilities like Google, Amazon, and Facebook through renewables, mainly because I've seen, you know, the guru himself, Elon Musk, do it with Tesla. These mega gig, gigafactories, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's, I mean, car manufacturing, you know, you, you won't really find a more energy intensive, you know, plant. It's, you know, it's really hard. And he's able to do it. Um, and like you said, you know, once you're fully renewable and the technologies you're utilizing to go fully renewable are paid off, you know, that's extra income you're getting from reduced utility bills. Yeah. And so we have the energy production aspect. That's mm-hmm. where we use a lot of the hydrocarbons. The other thing is, is transportation. And as a, as a island, as a country, as a society of the world, all the countries together, we are doing a quite poor job transitioning into electric vehicles, which, or hydrogen vehicles, mm-hmm. or bi- biofuel-powered vehicles, if you want. Um, that's problematic. And so really, that's the next step where we have to do a lot better. And you need to be careful, because if you have an, ele- and there's a lot of people, if you have an electric vehicle, and you live in the middle of Wyoming, and you produce 95% of your electricity for coal, your electric vehicle 
is marginally, if any, better than a gasoline car mm -hmm. because it's just taking one fossil fuel and replacing it with the other. Now, if you have solar or if you have hydroelectric or a large amount of wind, like I believe Iowa produces 35% of their electricity through wind turbines, oh, wow. which is quite large. Yeah, that is. Uh, awesome. Per capita, it's the large. They don't produce the most wind energy, but mm -hmm. the, they produce the most um, ratio of wind energy to total generation consumption mm -hmm. of any state. Oh, wow. So in that case, you would be getting every three watts that go into your car. One of those watts would be coming from. Uh, um, yeah, wind, right? wind, yeah, a, a wind, yeah, wind generated electrons, if you will, it's pretty mm. much the basis of electricity. There you go. So um, if you have solar on your house, it's a no-brainer. If you're on Kauai and you're charging during the day, mm -hmm. we get about 90 to 95% of our energy from renewables during the day. So therefore, you're charging your car literally with the sun. That's so beautiful. Wow. That's where we basically need to go. And it, the other interesting thing is, is that as you have renewables and, and things, when you plug your cars in, these cars act as batteries individually for people. So here on Kauai, during the day, we actually have, in many cases on a bright sunny day, we have too much energy during the day where we literally shut panels off. We aren't even able to maximize our panels electricity production because humans are quite predictable. And peak power, when people really need the energy, is from seven to nine at night. Mm -hmm. As you all know, in Hawaii, the sun's pretty much down by 7, 7.30 at the mm -hmm. latest when you have the longest days of the year near the summer solstice. Yeah. So um, we need to, if you have an electric car mm -hmm. and you have it plugged in or you have a thousand electric cars or you have 8,000 electric mm -hmm. cars and those cars can be plugged in during the day, you could be full on putting yeah. all the solar and you wouldn't have to shut any of those off because you're just going to train the cars are essentially acting as storage mm -hmm. for your energy source. So the grid can start to evolve if you can couple these things together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, And that's yeah. the, and on, here on Kauai, you, we're in the middle, like we're pretty much as far as a grid's concerned, I know very few other grids, if any, that are going to be at like 70% renewables. Wow. Like they didn't think this could happen. Yeah. Like, they're, they're beating the timeline. Oh, we're crushing yeah. the timeline if you really look at what we're doing. But in my opinion, we were still like here. We we're like doing well, but we could have been doing a little faster. Mm -hmm. But we're doing it faster than anybody. But that's how slow everybody else is going. Yes, incredibly slow. So part of the show, we're going to have green facts of the day every episode. And we kind of just hit it. You knew these numbers yourself, which is interesting. But... The, this data is pulled from the Energy Information Agency, which is one of the main agencies yeah, people utilize to look at energy usage within the U.S. And in 2018, 17% of electricity generated within the U.S. was renewable. And going back to what you said, Kauai is 55%. And that is just a massive, massive difference. And, you know, you, you kind of hit it on the head, but what I was curious about, you know, is having a co-op here I really really makes a difference you know if, if the people want to go renewable it's it makes it more possible also being in an island community you know it's, it's hard to make the US mainland which especially you know is very invested in the fossil fuel industry and is also just so massive in how much electricity it needs to generate it's hard for them to bring that 17 to 55 and was one thing that I didn't mention which is very imperative and to how Kauai transitioned and why Kauai transitioned mm -hmm. is since we're connected no other place 
we can't do the cheapest source of energy like coal or natural gas just by the sheer um, logistical problems of being 2,500 miles from any place that has this stuff. Yeah. So, so therefore, we have very expensive electricity. Therefore, anyone that wants to produce, any private company that wants to make a renewable energy project, if they can get, instead of being in the middle of Iowa um, or Wyoming and you're getting power for four cents a kilowatt hour, we're paying 35 cents a kilowatt hour. The economics just get pushed. If you can sell your solar energy for 14 cents a kilowatt hour compared to like fighting someone selling coal for like four cents a kilowatt hour. So that has been another very key factor to the equation that has pushed mm-hmm. us this far is just because of our energy price. And that's the economics of it. And we can now, as a, at, in the United States, it is now the cheapest way to generate electricity per kilowatt hour or megawatt hour, however you want to quantify it, is wind power. Wind power. We can't, we can't extract and burn and transport coal cheaper than we can do wind now, which is the first time in hundreds, Ever, hundreds of years, I mean, uh, at least 150 years. I mean, we mm-hmm. really started getting electricity, you know what, like late 1800s, mm-hmm. I believe. So late 1900, over the last 150 years, this is the first time that something has pretty much been cheaper than coal on a significant generation level. Wow. So I guess, yeah, I mean, you you personally, I know, I mean, solar, wind energy, and hydroelectric energy all have their advantages. But like you just said, wind energy compares and beats coal, which is the cheapest electric source. On price. So would you wager we should be investing more in wind energy, or are you still believing we really should invest heavily also in hydro and solar as well. You know, each particular type of way we produce energy, whether it be fossil fuels, solar, wind, biomass, Mm -hmm. they all are going to have some positives and also some negatives. What you need to do is you need to weigh these and compare them because you can always point out windmills kill birds. Mm Then, but you could also be like, well, a coal mine takes out thousands of, you know, thousands of acres. Maybe that might be an overstatement, but mm-hmm. collectively, for sure, oh, yeah, many coal yeah. mines, thousands of acres of bird habitat. Yeah. So you're talking about killing a bird within the ind- an individual within the population, mm-hmm. and then you're talking about removing where that population can continue to breed and go, and that's a very important thing because, um, you know. You can get all heated up about the birds, but then just go look at where the coal mine's at. Look at the tailing ponds mm-hmm. that are just open water, wastewater pits on top of the ground. Yeah. And tell me what you think is going to be more of a, a um, detriment to that population. So, you know, we need, essentially there's no silver bullet at this point. We need a combination of everything. And that's part of the learning curve that hopefully on Kauai we're setting a precedence that we can help other people transition at the rate that we did or faster by seeing how we solve some of the problems that people were just a few years ago saying are not possible to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's why it's unfortunate that we don't have the political will we need currently 
regarding energy infrastructure because su subsidizing is a you know a very huge way to you know speed up the process yeah and unlevel the playing field which is what most people say but the fossil fuel industry is heavily subsidized because it's a massive income generator i mean like it's there's no larger industry on earth than the f energy and fuel industry in my mm -hmm. opinion i could be wrong i'm not an economist but i mean it's gotta be they top just five or top it's three unbelievable you know and and they've has it been bad for humanity i mean overall we have benefited insanely mm -hmm. from being able to harness science and utilize science to push our society forward we're great at doing what we're doing it's amazing that we can f what how we can frack it's amazing how we can extract the tar sands out of the Alberta, you know, shale up there. All of that stuff. It's it's amazing, but should we do it just because we can? And that's the problem. We don't it's not we have enough other alternatives now. It's just not necessary. The problem is these people are invested and they don't want to lose. And by mm -hmm. pulling out it's going to create an economic hurt. I like to tell people there came a day when we no longer needed the wooden wheel. That doesn't mean that we keep subsidizing the guys so they can keep making wooden wheels when we have an inferior, or we have a superior product. So there's always going to be transition. Someone's always going to be left behind or you're just going to, we don't need a rotary phone anymore. We don't mm -hmm. need, uh, everyone at their house doesn't need a home phone service anymore. Yeah. Unfortunate, yeah. that's just part of the changing of the times and how mm -hmm. technology put us forward. We're yeah. reaching that point with the fossil fuel industry. Um, or I shouldn't say we're not reaching that point close even with like gasoline and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But as far as coal goes, yeah, as far as coal, we'll just we'll just stick with coal because that would. There we go. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned the Alberta oil tar sands because I actually have it pulled up, and yeah, that is not you know that is not what you want to see. It's it's a disgusting sight. I mean, no no species is going to thrive there. No, you know? and and you know they'll um, they take the arboreal forest which is essentially like a temperate rainforest and they just take everything off the top of the bulldozer scrape it then dig it out and they do do some remediation where they say hey we throw you know dirt back on it and we put replant stuff on it and that may be true but why the amount of energy it takes to just extract the crude from the tar sands and then the mm -hmm. crude actually is a lower quality crude which has a high a high or composition of bitumen bitumen is a a complex hydrocarbon. So essentially, you extract the energy from the carbon-hydrogen bonds in hydrocarbon. Mm -hmm. Methane has four carbon-hydrogen bonds. It is, the most it is the most efficient as far as amount of energy you get per amount of CO2 you produce. And as you start making the molecules longer, so say we go to the next one, that's mm -hmm. ethane. That has two carbons and six hydrogens. So the ratio went from one carbon to four and four hydrogens to two carbons and six. So it went one to four to th three to one or one to three. When you start getting down to bitumen where there's 20 plus carbons, mm -hmm. when you burn that, you get the least amount of energy with the most amount of pollution as far as hydrocarbons are concerned. And as wow. in pollution, we're saying um, CO2. Mm -hmm. Carbon dioxide, of course. And that's a greenhouse gas. Yep. And what's a greenhouse gas? 
Should I answer that? <laughs> yeah, you should answer that. I couldn't tell if it was a rhetorical okay. question. So, yeah. So, a green, everyone hears about this, global warming, yeah. greenhouse gases. Oh, what's man. going on? What is it? What is it? Well, let's get just back to the basics. We, mm-hmm. are, we are a planet floating around the sun. We've developed an atmosphere, which is quite lucky for us. Why? Because it buffers our temperature from being in outer space, and it also allows us to accumulate molecules around us. Therefore, we can believe, or, excuse me, breathe oxygen, a number of other products that are essential for us. The water cycle can go through frozen liquid and gas, which is important for survival of life as we currently know it. I just, there could be aliens out there that do other things, and I'm certain there aliens, are. But for living life on Earth, we pretty much need the waters. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to have water in, you know, within a temperature range where it can... Anyway, so over time, we've created an ozone layer around us, and that ozone layer actually also protects us from radiation. UVA, UVBs, because the sun puts out a ton of this stuff, it actually reflects a lot of it into space. Mm -hmm. It obviously doesn't reflect all of it to space because we can see. So when um, when these beams come through and they hit Earth, they actually don't interact with greenhouse gases on their way down. But on a hot, sunny day, you jump out at the beach, you're barefoot, you notice something. Or asphalt parking lot mm-hmm. or something. You notice something about that. And that is that it's hot. Why is it hot? It is hot because, and it's not hot at night. It doesn't mm-hmm. get hot on its own. Yeah. So, and energy isn't really, you know, it's just kind of, it's not created or destroyed. It's just kind of transferred. So mm-hmm. we have a light beam flying in at Earth. It hits the sun. It releases some energy in the form of heat to that piece of sand. That sand is not alive. It can't make heat on its own. It got its energy from that light beam for easy. Mm-hmm. That light beam then reflects back out to space. But that light beam has now lost energy. In turn, that changes its wavelength. This new wavelength that it now has after it has given off some of its energy happens to be able to interact with certain molecules. If it interacts with these molecules, and produces an excitement of these molecules, or AKA a vibration, that is known as a greenhouse gas. So the science behind that is, well, we, we've known since like the 1800s, scientists figured out that CO2, carbon dioxide, can harness a little bit of energy of light. And as you increase the concentration, you just have more molecules, and mm-hmm. those molecules, as you have more, and light continues to hit them, they continue to vibrate. That vibration, much like rubbing your hands together, mm-hmm. makes a little bit of friction and puts off a little bit of heat. And that is the whole scientific basis mm-hmm. of why we are concerned about releasing greenhouse gases carbon dioxide, methane, a number of other things, into the atmosphere. And then we can now quantify that we, that these are increasing at relatively alarming levels. And I don't know how you could argue that humans aren't involved when every electricity, every time you start your car, you're producing these things. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just, I don't know how you could try to justify that not, how we could not have an effect. We got 7 billion people on earth. Yeah, and, and the correlation between high amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and 
temperature is so, so, so strong, the correlation between the two. Precisely. Because people try to argue, you know, there was other times during, you know, worlds, the Earth's existence that there was this much carbon in the atmosphere or it was this hot. But the thing is, we weren't alive back then. Well, the, the, the problem isn't that it changes. And I, I agree. It's constantly mm -hmm. changing. The Earth is constantly changing. Things happen. Mm -hmm. Asteroids hit us, whatever, volcanoes. Mm -hmm. There's a number of things that happen. So it's not that we're changing that is the most concerning. It's the rate at which the change is occurring. Mm -hmm. We think we're so significant, but we live in a speck of time. Like humans really for the last two, 300, 200 years have been quite industrious and like really making a major impact all over Earth. And during that time, the change of which the concentration of CO2 has gone up has been exponential compared to other periods of time like that. There might be a single event or a series of events mm -hmm. over a short time that spiked it, but as far as just like continuing to see the accumulation for over time and the rate at which that accumulation is happening is where the concern's at. And also relatively little will to change. I, I I totally hear you, man, and this is this is all very very valuable information uh, to you know really think of when it comes to this issue. You know, people are always bombarded with conflicting information, but you as a scientist, you know, you can validate the the wide consensus on the science behind it and the the causes of it and the implications of it. This is why. On my syllabi, I always put a famous quote by John F. John F. Kennedy, and it's th pretty much the goal of knowledge is for the dissemination, dissemination of truth. Why do we want to get educated? We want to get educated so we can find out the truth on our own, and people can't trick us and tell us what is true and not true. We have a basis that we can make educated decisions, and maybe... Your educated decision will come that you believe that humans aren't causing anything. Mm -hmm. But by making an attempt and getting education, that's like the number one thing that I feel we can do as a society. Because no one likes people telling them what to do. But if you can figure out the problem and change your behavior based on facts that you've learned or knowledge you've obtained, that's how we're seriously going to change in my opinion. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm in education. That's why I chose to study this stuff and kind of dedicate my life to a certain degree to basically trying to get this information out there. That's why mm -hmm. I totally stoked that you had me on the show. It lets me reach a lot more people. Mm -hmm. Even if I'm just reaching 10 in the classroom, if I just am able to change a few people we have, but we need to change faster. And that's yeah. the frustration and the problem. Yeah. And like, but can't get caught up in it. Is the earth mm -hmm. gonna be destroyed tomorrow, next year? Probably not. Mm -hmm. I'll say confidently not, unless some drastic thing happens. Yeah. But you know, 10, 15 years down the road, is it gonna be destroyed? You know, probably not. Is it gonna be healthy and thriving? I would argue, probably not. Mm -hmm. But the sooner we can start being more like an indigenous culture mm -hmm. and treating the Aina like it's a member of our family or that it's like a important 
being and not something that's just used as a resource and extracted from. Yep. And that's when we make the change. And that's like the philosophy of the indigenous cultures. I've loved being on Kauai and being able to learn from people with that perspective. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's been very valuable in me as a scientist because a lot of times science just wants to look at the molecules or everything. Mm-hmm. But even though the Polynesians weren't, didn't know how many kilocalories of energy was in a kukui nut, mm-hmm. they understood the whole without knowing everything about it. But we're able to thrive and, and succeed as a culture for, you know, yeah, a, long, a thousand long years before yeah. Columbus or, you know, Cook was even Captain born. Cook. <laughs> you know, they, they had already figured all this stuff out. And unfortunately, they pretty much got ran over because they didn't write the laws and the guys with the guns and the power and the pretty much capitalistic mindset mm-hmm. exploited these regions and changed their way of life. And it's been hard for them to recover. And I'm not a cultural expert by any mm-hmm. means or, you know, but it's just my opinion. Totally, totally. And, you know, I mean, coming here from the mainland, same with me, you know, it's it's been an interesting and awesome, you know, transition of knowledge to, to see the different approaches to, you know, the this issue of the need for Aloha Aina, which for our audience that doesn't know, Aloha Aina is essentially love of the land, you know, love of the planet, you know, treating it with respect. And going off all those great comments you said, Dan, I would just like to thank you for coming on for episode one, sustainability science, explaining its importance, you know, and and what it should be everybody's life, but also your own life. And uh, for any potential students out there, you should sign up for one of this man's classes. He's got a bunch of great ones. I'm in the uh, renewable energy one, I love it. And uh, do you want to give a little quick side plug for a little of your side businesses that you have? <laughs> you know, just one thing. KCC is an amazing place. Unbelievably affordable education. Come get yourself educated. Just find out what you're passionate about and start learning about that. So you, And there, no matter what it is you're learning about, there's a sustainability approach or mindset or something that you can take away and make whatever you're passionate about better as far as sustainability it's not something that's a science problem it's a mm-hmm. it's a science problem it's a it's a problem that every single thing can benefit can benefit from mm-hmm. if you will so basically you know i've came to the conclusion of like how can i really make a difference reaching people and a number of people and education is one mm-hmm. but i'm a huge advocate for electric cars teslas i mean it's pretty much the premium vehicle, but now mm-hmm. we're still buying like 50 to one gas cars and t- almost 2020 to electric cars. It's here. Wow. Yeah. Most people don't drive over hundred miles a day. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do, it's the problem is, you know, my Tesla gets one of them that gets 325 miles per charge per charge. Wow. So basically insane amount. I, I came in t- 2017, the Kauai Community College sent me to the Pacific Energy Conference over in Honolulu, where we talked to a whole bunch of of island nations throughout the world. And me and a former colleague at the college came up with a concept that we basically need people to start adapting electric cars. Mm -hmm. So um, we formed a company, uh, Mission Zero Hawaii, and we are the state's largest electric vehicle rental car company. it is a premium opportunity on an island where it has a fairly small distance where you're going to be traveling. 
um, and you're going to rent a car anyway for someone to have an experience with an EV because there's a lot of negative stuff out there. There's a lot no one knows. People are, you know, just completely clueless. And we thought that by getting people behind the wheels of these things, we can maybe change their perspective or at least give them an insight to what's going on here. Mm-hmm. We've now completed over 500 bookings oh, wow. of people renting electric cars Go on Kauai. And uh, so, and many people have actually, I shouldn't say many, but we've actually had people buy cars because they were here. So that oh, wow. is why I kind of started the company. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm passionate about that. So if you, even if it's with our company, any company, if you get the opportunity to drive an EV or you're going out to buy a new car, mm-hmm. most companies are doing EVs at this point. Look at it. Be honest. Look at the energy savings associated with them. Not having oil change, timing belt, all this stuff is not in an electric car. And everyone's worried about the battery. You know, the batteries, as far as like current production, we the chemistry and the technology has evolved to a certain point. Like, it's just... A superior mode of transportation mm. in a number of ways in yeah. in a number of ways there's that yeah and all right well yeah thank you so much again and i'd also like to thank maria she's been our sound engineer for podcast number one she's been sitting here diligently for 45 minutes thank you so much i'd also like to thank scott and steve for letting us use the digital media center and uh, getting this all hooked up so Tune in next week where I will be talking trash with Zero Waste Kauai President Jesse Brownclay. Have a good day. Aloha, everybody. Mahalo for listening. Aloha. Aloha.